0: continue our time together this morning in prayer together. God, we pray that as we open your word today, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us wisdom to receive uh, the truth of your words in this passage. God, we ask that you would help us to receive the gospel, that you would allow it to have uh, established roots in our hearts, that it would bring us joy, everlasting joy in you and in your love for us. God, you alone are what we need and who we turn to, and we do that this morning as we open your word together. We lift up these requests to you, and in the name of your son, amen. Well, as many, as, as many of you know, I grew up in Colorado, and because of that, I have always been a little bit of a snob about mountains. I would visit places like New Mexico, and I would think to myself, if only these people would travel a little bit further north, they would see some real mountains, some more impressive mountains. And I always had that in the back of my mind, that I knew where to go to find real mountains or impressive mountains. And I always felt that way until just a few years ago when I went to Canada for the first time. And as Jessica and I drove on winding roads through the Canadian Rockies, I kept thinking one thing. I have got to stop bragging about the mountains in Colorado. Because I was suddenly confronted with the fact that the mountains I grew up with were dwarfed by these imposing peaks with their jagged ridges and their glaciers and their grizzly bears. I didn't particularly like admitting that my mountains weren't the best mountains, but I couldn't deny the truth. We've probably all had an experience like that when we were confronted with the objective truth that something that we've treasured has been outdone, overshadowed by something that is better. That's the sort of experience that we share with the people in the passage we're looking at today, with certain people in this passage we're looking at today. And the reason I think that we all have that shared experience, the reason that we share it with some of the people in this passage, is that we are lousy judges. We often mistake lesser things for greater things than they really are. Sometimes it's because it's all we know. I thought that Colorado had the best part of the Rocky Mountains because I had never been further north. So we mix up shoddy imitations for the things that they imitate. And as we open the book of John to chapter 3, Jesus has left Jerusalem with his disciples. He's now in the countryside where people are coming to him to be baptized. And while he's there, a conversation takes place among John the Baptist's disciples. We first met John the Baptist in chapter 1, and he's described to us as a man sent from God whose name was John, who came to bear witness about the light, He was not the light, we read, but came to bear witness about the light. He came to prepare the way for Jesus to come into the world. And in that role, he gained quite a following of people who would hear God's words in his voice. And so they followed him, hoping that what he proclaimed was true, that the light of the world was coming to dwell in the world that he made. And because of that, crowds flocked to him. They hung on his every word and were interested in the things that he was declaring. And people wanted then to know, because so many people were following him, what he was up to. And so Jewish authorities came to him and asked him, who are you? And he replied, I am not the Messiah. I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, he says basically the same thing. He repeats himself. He tells his disciples in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. It's what he's been saying all along, but it bears repeating because the crowds that followed him and the people who heard his teaching set their hope on the words that he spoke and they were just like us. They mistook the shadow for the real thing, the lesser voice in the wilderness for the greater one to come. And that tendency is what this passage this morning confronts. So, Jesus has left Jerusalem and gone into the countryside where people are coming to him for baptism. Now, John makes clear to us just a few verses later in chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus himself doesn't actually do any of the baptizing, but his disciples did. And presumably, this is because if anyone were baptized by Jesus, they might claim some superiority over others, like they got some kind of special baptism. So, Jesus is with his disciples who are baptizing people who have come looking for Jesus, And meanwhile, John the Baptist is also in the wilderness with his own disciples, baptizing those who come to him, two teachers in the wilderness. It's a setting that might result in some tension, perhaps some conflict. John's disciples certainly thought so. We're told in verses 25 and 26 that a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Evidently, John's disciples hear about what is happening with Jesus from someone who had questions about this situation. People were leaving John the Baptist's group to go to Jesus's group. Rather than seeking John for baptism, they are seeking Jesus instead. And John was baptizing people in repentance and hope. It represented a ceremonial cleansing, purification, and the hope that God would receive his repentant people in love. The crowds that flocked to John the Baptist reveal how desperately people wanted the hope that he had proclaimed. And the setting here reminds me of an experience that I had several years ago on a trip to Kenya. I went to visit the very northernmost part of that country, a region called Turkana. And Turkana is a desert. It's absolutely one of the driest, most difficult-to-live places I've ever seen in my life. When I was there, it hadn't rained in over seven years. The landscape is rugged and barren with occasional shrubs and acacia trees dotting the landscape. We attended a church service, which wasn't in a fancy sanctuary. It wasn't even actually in a building because there were no buildings. Instead, the church service that I attended that morning was held under the biggest tree around so that the most people could have a little bit of shade. And after the church service, everyone stood up and started walking toward a line of trees on the horizon. Everyone was excited. Kids were running around everywhere. People were singing and dancing as we walked along in the 100-degree heat. Hundreds of us arrived at the line of trees on the horizon, and I was amazed to see there a river swiftly flowing through the desert. It was a bizarre thing to see in a place like that, and it turned out I learned later that that river only flowed for about one month a year. The other 11 months of the year, it was just a dry riverbed. And for the church there that we celebrated with that morning, it was their only shot at having baptisms for the whole year because they literally didn't have enough water to submerge someone in unless this river was flowing, which it only did for a short time every year. The rest of the time they were waiting for rains to fall upstream so that they could participate in this important part of the life of the church. Just like the people in our passage, they had to go find water in order to be baptized, and they were overjoyed that for a few weeks they could rejoice together in the baptism of believers as they proclaimed their faith and their new life in Christ. Here in John 3, though, it is not a baptism symbolizing the finished work of salvation in Christ, but the hope that God would purify his people, and people have come looking for that hope. Matthew 14 notes that John the Baptist was so popular that after he was arrested, he was not put to death right away because people considered him a prophet, and so many followed him. People have come to the wilderness to find John, to hear him proclaiming the coming of God's promised deliverer, to have the hope of God's purification from their guilt and from their sin. Yet, something has changed. People are beginning to leave John the Baptist to go look for Jesus, who is also teaching and baptizing in the wilderness. And John's disciples are panicking. They come to him, their respect and their reverence for their beloved teacher evident in the way that they call him rabbi, and they say, this guy from before to whom you bore witness, he is out here baptizing too. They subtly remind John that he was here first, and the implication there is that he ought to have precedence over this new teacher. And they say, all are going to Jesus. You're losing your influence, your reputation, and your status, and they want to know what he's going to do about it. But John's reply to them is utter joy that people are leaving. He doesn't respond the way that people expect or in the way that really anyone would have expected. He defies all human reasoning. If you worked for a news station, if you were a producer for a TV news station and you received a ratings report that said that your audience was dwindling as they chose to watch other channels instead, your response to that report would not be joy. You would do what John's disciples expected him to do. You'd up your game. You'd do everything you could to keep people coming back. You'd panic over the threat represented by your competition. You'd probably fear being fired over the situation. But John surprises his friends by making two basic points in response to them. First, he reminds them that God is at work. John answered, in verse 27, a person cannot receive one, even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This verse has been interpreted in various ways. Who is John talking about in this passage? Is he talking about himself or about Jesus? And what is the thing that is given? Is John talking about the crowds, or is he talking about understanding that would answer his disciples' concerns? John's reply is mo- most likely what's called an aphorism, a well-known saying or proverb containing a principle that's applicable in a variety of situations. Like how we say today, don't judge a book by its cover or actions speak louder than words. John is reminding his friends of something that they already know. God is at work here. His sovereign designs are working out. And John has sought to play the role that he has been given in God's plans. It's an idea that has characterized his entire life. And he wants those who are following him to pursue the same thing because contentment with what we have been given is something that does not come naturally to most of us. Just like John's disciples, we look around at others that we can see and we want what they have. They were concerned that their beloved teacher was losing his status. And they wanted to have a strategy strategy session to figure out how to get it back. But John knows that he has been given a specific role to play. And he knows that God is at work in drawing people to Christ. The second point that he makes in response to his disciples is straightforward. He knows that he is not God. He reminds them, you yourselves were here with me to to, to hear me declare that I am not the promised Messiah, but was sent before him. He knows the work that he has been given to go ahead of Jesus and to announce his coming. And he explains that with an illustration about a wedding in verse 29. He says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, or just the groom, since we don't really use the word bridegroom anymore. The friend of the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John knows that he is not the groom. He is the friend of the groom, or what we might call the best man. And the best man has a role to play, certainly an important one, but it doesn't involve getting married. Imagine a wedding where the best man pushes the groom out of the way to marry the bride instead. Obviously, that's not how it's supposed to work. If you have ever been to a wedding where that has happened, I would love to hear about it. No, that's not how it's supposed to work because the groom marries the bride and the best man celebrates their union. That's how it's supposed to work. And John knows that he is not the groom. In this illustration, John is drawing on some significant Old Testament passages in this reference to a wedding. In Isaiah 62, God describes his future joy over his people saying, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And the whole book of Hosea is the story of God's never-ending, forgiving love for his people, which is illustrated in the marriage of a wayward bride to a faithful prophet. It is one of the ways that God has described his relationship with his people, and it is the one used to describe the culmination of all of salvation history. In Revelation 21, Revelation 21, verses 1 and and 2 describe the day when all of God's work to redeem and restore his people will be complete. And the Apostle John, who wrote this book that we're reading from this morning, when he sees a vision of that day, he reports, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John the Baptist, in his response to the concern of his friends, is drawing on this, this way that God has described his love for his people. God loves his people as a groom loves his bride. And he knows, John knows, that he is not the groom in this scenario. But the groom has come. Jesus has come to meet his bride. John is the best man, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Some of you have been a best man or or a maid of honor at someone's wedding, and you know that you were asked to do that because of your close relationship with the bride or the groom or both, and you also know what it feels like to see the joy of someone you love and feel joy yourself even though you were not the one getting married. John is not sad that the crowds coming to him are smaller and smaller every day. Instead, he says that he rejoices greatly. Hearing the voice of the groom, the best man rejoices because the wedding is about to happen. It's a clear illustration, I think a straightforward explanation, but I'm still amazed at John's attitude here. He must increase, John says, but I must decrease. He is anticipating his own continued descent. He knows that Jesus will rise, that he must rise, and that his role, John's role, is nearing its end. In fact, it won't be long before John is taken into custody and later executed, and even though John doesn't know exactly what the coming days will hold, he says with joy, I must decrease. This is not what his disciples were expecting him to say. It defied their understanding of his mission, but he says it with utter conviction and with joy because he knows that Jesus is greater, that he is glorious, that he is able to save, and that his love for his bride is sufficient. And that is how the passage ends in our, the, the last paragraph of chapter 3 with an explanation for why Jesus is greater than John. These last verses begin, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. John knows that there is something different about Jesus. Something that sets him apart from every other teacher like John himself. Even though John was a man sent from God, which we read in chapter 1, and other teachers and leaders throughout Scripture were appointed by God for the work that they carried out, all of them were uh, to, to use john's expression of the earth along with every one of us our perspective and our experience is limited to this so that so that it makes so it makes sense that we speak in an earthly way john wants people to hear from the one who bears witness to what he has seen and heard in heaven john's disciples have heard the truth from him he has proclaimed the coming of God's kingdom, the arrival of the Messiah. And he has baptized people in the hope of purification from sin. But now the one who is truth, who inaugurates God's kingdom in himself, who is the Messiah and who will atone for sin has come. And John knows his place. It would be like sitting around talking with friends of yours about Italy. Maybe you've been to Italy before Maybe you've seen the Colosseum and other famous sites in Italy. Maybe you know a lot about Italian history. Maybe you've eaten a lot of Italian food. Maybe you even speak a little bit of Italian. But as you're sitting there telling your friends lots of things that they didn't know about Italy, while you're talking, explaining something about Italian culture or history, an actual living, breathing Italian person walks in the room, someone who has lived their entire life in Italy. It would be very strange of you to say, in that moment. Don't pay any attention to that person. I know what I'm talking about. I, I've been to Italy a couple times. I know a lot. You should listen to me. Don't listen to them. John is a man sent from God. He, he isn't teaching things that are wrong. He does know what he's talking about. He knows about God's promises, and he knows that God will keep them. And he knows these things because he has been given God's Spirit to speak the truth about heavenly things. Just like prophets before him, those who wrote the books of the Old Testament, he has been inspired by God's Spirit to speak what he has been given to say. But now, one has come who is above all, who has come from heaven and who utters the words of God because he has been given the Spirit without measure. Unlike John and all other prophets who are given just the measure of God's Spirit required to carry out the work appointed to them, Jesus has all of it. Prophets like Moses and Elijah and John were given exactly what they needed to do what they were called to do. But Jesus has the Spirit without measure because the Father loves him and has given all things into his hand. Therefore, he is able to do what John never could. Jesus is the light that John couldn't be, the hope that John could only point to. He is the salvation that John could could only announce, and in him is eternal life. John is of the earth, a son of Adam who walks in his sinful footsteps. He is like us. He knows things about heaven, but he's never been there. He knows things about holiness, but he's never been holy. He knows things about perfection, but he's never been perfect. Even though he is a man sent from God on a mission from God's sovereign plans, he is a sinner just like us. It is a curse that afflicts all of humanity, which John describes by saying that all who are of the earth belong to the earth. It's a comment not of ownership but of classification. John isn't saying that we are owned by the earth, but we are of the order of the earth. It is our nature. And because of that, we cannot break free from it We are, by nature, slaves to sin, according to Scripture in Romans 6, unable to break its grasp on our hearts by our sheer force of will. Often, we treat sin like it's a nuisance or a bad habit that we need to get more serious about dealing with, as if it were the same as biting our fingernails, a habit that we should break if we were willing to take the time and the effort to do it. But Scripture describes this problem as one which is much more serious. It is like a virus that has spread through our lives and taken hold of our hearts. We resist it, but we falter. We struggle to be free of it, but keep turning toward it. We can no more overcome our sin nature than a fish can decide to breathe out of water. Even heroes like John the Baptist are in its grip. So he cannot save. He belongs to the earth. He cannot deliver those who look to him for hope. He can only point to the one who can. And the one who can save is here. Jesus has come. and He has come to save by giving his life for John's disciples and for us. Apart from him, we stand before God guilty of all of our failures, guilty of our rebellion against him. We've see, we see that in the very last verse of this passage. John reminds everyone reading this that the situation is much more perilous than we often assume or accept. Even though talking about God's wrath is an uncomfortable topic, and though it's become less and less acceptable to address even in churches, scripture does not often or does not soften what's at stake here. Life apart from Christ is wrath. For some that statement negates God's love. How could a loving God be wrathful, they ask. But it is, it is his love that is underneath his wrath. It is God's holy judgment against sin, against all evil and all wickedness. He would hardly be loving at all if he overlooked evil and if he tolerated wickedness. And because he is love and because he is just, his wrath for sin and rebellion against what is holy and good is driven by his love. And in our sin, those are the things that we bring to him, rebellion against what is holy and what is good. But with Christ, there is light and life. Whoever believes in the Son, John says, has eternal life. John the Baptist cannot save, but he knows the one who can. This passage from the book of John falls in a section that is tied together by a common theme. We know that the author of this book has been selective and careful about the composition of this book. At the very end, he will note that Jesus did a great many other things which are not recorded in this book, because if all of them were written down, I suppose, he says, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I take that to mean that John labored very carefully over this book, carefully selecting which of the great many things that he witnessed he would include. And it seems that chapters two through four of this book are designed to help us behold Jesus in a particular way. He is the new wine, better than what was served before, as part of a greater joy than what was known before. He is the new temple, doing what the old temple could never do. He proclaims the new birth for those born of the earth as slaves to sin. And he is the new purification, providing what the law and ceremonial cleansing never could. He has come to fulfill the hope of God's people in ways only promised until his arrival. Jesus is greater. The writer of Hebrews opens his book with this idea. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, Whereas God had spoken through prophets, appointed for and gifted to carry out God's plan, God has now spoken in a greater way. One has come who has authority over all things, who holds creation together by the word of his power, and who makes purification for sins in ways that the law and the priesthood never could. He is superior to angels. He is greater than the priesthood. He is greater than everything else we might look to for hope and rescue. So it makes sense to me that John would rejoice at his coming, even if it meant his own descent. The one who understood his own identity as a voice crying out in the wilderness has been superseded by another voice. I can't help noticing this repeated emphasis on uh, on a theme in the closing lines of this passage. John rejoices to hear the voice of the bridegroom, because it means he's come to meet his bride though john can only speak in an earthly way another has come who bears witness to god's sovereign designs though few will receive his testimony those who do those who do declare the truthfulness uh, god's truthfulness because jesus utters the words of god himself over and over again in a short space john has emphasized speaking john the baptist was a voice crying out in the wilderness that's how he described himself but this voice, this voice that has come, will do what John never could. That theme will develop throughout the rest of the book. Jesus will describe himself as a shepherd who calls his sheep by name, and they will come because they know the sound of his voice. Jesus will raise the dead with a loud voice crying to Lazarus, come out. And he will declare to Roman officials that everyone who is of the truth will listen to his voice. John the Baptist's whole identity His whole identity has been superseded by the one whose coming he was sent to announce. And there's nothing that brings him greater joy than that people are leaving him to look for Jesus. He's content with his lesser role because Jesus will do what he could not. I think we have a lot to learn from John's reply to his disciples in this sometimes overlooked passage. As a pastor, I read these words with a particular conviction. How easy it is for me to fall into the temptation which overcame John's disciples, to set my sights on having the largest crowd or the biggest influence, to have the most views on a sermon that will be posted on YouTube, to feel better about myself if I feel my influence is greater, my status higher. It is a temptation among pastors to long for these things, and one, I think, that is often overlooked or even celebrated, because who would fault a pastor for hoping that the pews would be filled on Sunday morning. But if it is a desire for personal glory or for higher status or for greater influence, it is a deadly desire because no pastor's voice can save. If my aim is to draw people to myself, I have sealed my contempt for them. It was John's love for Jesus and his love for his friends that drove him to respond in ways that they did not expect. He wanted them to have Jesus, to hear the voice that calls people back to life, not for them to settle for something less. John's response to his disciples is an example for all pastors. We are not the Savior, but we know him, and our role is to declare his gospel to the world. But I think this passage is also an example to all Christ followers, not just those of us who preach sermons and work in church offices. First, I think it pushes us to honestly ask what we are seeking from our pastors and our elders. We should be careful not to put them on pedestals reserved for Jesus. We should neither glorify them nor pretend that they are any less in need of God's grace than the rest of us. We shouldn't look to pastors and elders to do what Jesus alone can do. But we should expect them to faithfully point us to Jesus himself. Secondly, this passage pushes us to honestly face the role that each of us has been called to in life. We have all been called, every one of us that follows Christ and calls Him our King, we have been called to live according to our faith in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, among our families, and our friends. And even though it is tempting to protect our reputations, our status, our influence, what the world needs most is not to follow us or to love us, but to follow Christ and to love Him. We hesitate to preach the gospel to our families, to our coworkers, or to our friends because we wonder if our relationships might be compromised if we bring up faith matters with them. But John the Baptist reminds me and reminds all of us that God is at work, that His sovereign designs are playing out, and that every single person in my life is here by god's providence and for his purpose and the only compromised relationships i have are with those i have not loved well enough to point them to the one whose voice raises the dead what our friends need most is not to love you and me but to love jesus john willingly laid aside his reputation and his status because he knew jesus and because he loved his friends The message of this passage might be boiled down to one central idea Jesus is greater. The longer we know him, the more we'll see that the things we've treasured before aren't as great as we thought they were, and the more we'll leverage our lives to help others know him better. The more that we look to him as Savior, the Savior that nothing else could be, the more we'll rejoice in the reason that we have because he is our Savior. Knowing Jesus means rejoicing in his glory, not our own, which we do because he is greater. We must settle for nothing less and give the world nothing less. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the fact that you uh, remind us that you are at work, remind us that All of the people that are in our lives are here because of your plans and your purposes, and we pray, Lord, that we would point, with all of our lives, we would point people to you, that we would declare your love for the world, for our friends, for our coworkers, for our families, that you would empower us and gift us for the work that you've given us, but that you would remind us that what the world needs is not us, it is you, it is your son. So God, we ask and we lift this request up to you in the name of your son this morning.